and welcome to the podcast for Lincoln's Symphony Orchestra. On this feed, you'll find all of our pre-concert chats, and today we're dropping in with a special interview with two of LSO's musicians. I'm Barbara Zock Lee, Executive Director of Lincoln Symphony Orchestra, and we're so glad you're listening today. And now, let's jump right into it. Today, we'd like to welcome Rich Jones. He is the principal timpanist of Lincoln's Symphony Orchestra. Since, Rich, do you want to tell me what year? Uh, boy, I don't know. I started playing in the symphony back in the mid-70s, but I don't know when I took over principal timpani. Okay. You guys might know that better. It would be maybe in the 90s or something, okay. 2000s. I don't know. It's been a while. So okay. A well, a lot of people see those timpani in the back of the orchestra. And if you're looking from stage at the conductor's pro, um, podium, Ed likes to have Rich towards the back on the right-hand side, right next to the basses. And I would, I wonder if you would just start by telling us a little bit more about your instrument. I think maybe people see there's, you know, typically four timpani and they think maybe it can just make four different pitches. Um, tell us kind of the nuances of what your instruments are able to do. Well, do you mind a bit of a history lesson? Yes. Uh, the timpani came into the orchestra around the Baroque era, around 1600, uh, Bach, you know, and Handel, and they were paired with the trumpets, and they were essentially considered the fourth trumpet, because they played just the tonic and the dominant of the, of the pitches there. And they were only used for celebratory music on special occasions and only had two pitches. And uh, that's why currently today I like to be back in the back with the brass and the, the basses because I am that low voice. Mm -hmm. and so that's where, where I feel comfortable and it blends better. Uh, in the classical era, they increased it to maybe three timpani and instead of just dominant and tonic, they might give you another scale degree called the subdominant. So you have three pitches to play. And then crazy composers like Beethoven and Mendelssohn thought, well, let's make them change pitches during the piece because we do this thing called modulation and we don't want to restrict them just to the, the home key. We want to take them elsewhere. So they would give you a few bars to negotiate a pitch change. And in those days, they didn't have a quick mechanism to do that. They were just you know, drums with these little tuning pins around the top, and you had to quickly tune them. And so you had to really be quick at what you were doing and know the pitches that where you wanted to go. So it was more of a challenge then in those days to make those quick changes. Well, as the uh, music progressed and composition got more complex, composers decided to add more and more pitches. So we added a few more drums instead of the two center drums, there might've been a smaller drum on the right and a bigger drum on the left. That way the, the timpanist didn't have to change pitches as often. Well, the composers didn't stop there. They decided, <laughs> well, let's make quicker changes. And so in about 1880, one of the stage hands in one of the Berlin orchestras decided to help the timpanist out by he made this rapid tuning mechanism that you could use a foot pedal with. And that just adjusted the pitches so they could do it quickly or more quickly anyway. So that was really the advent of the modern timpani. We now have four drums 
and the, each one has a pedal and it essentially just puts more tension on the head which increases the pitch when you push the pedal down and then when you let the pedal up it relaxes the tension in the head and the pitch goes lower so it essentially is a fixed pitched instrument we only have one pitch at a time but then a composer might say i need you to go from this d to this e in like two measures so you take the pedal and you push it and the pitch goes up so you do have a little bit of time to negotiate kind of that kind i of think things. observant um symphony goers will notice you occasionally you do like a little a little a little flick on the instrument and you put your ear down by it so that you make sure before you do the big hit that you're mm -hmm. in tune right right because there is no guarantee that you're going to have the correct pitch unless you hear it ahead of time because you don't want to be banging on the head while the flutes have a solo you know john bailey wouldn't enjoy that too much so you, you, you lightly touch the head with your finger, at least I do, and it, and it gives you a response of the pitch. No one else can hear it but you. So yeah, we have to tune ahead and we have to be confident that the pitch is gonna be right, especially when we come in loud. Because have you ever had a surprise when you went to hit the drum and had something come out that you did not expect? Unfortunately, yes. I <laughs> believe it was a Mahler too at the beginning of the uh, year. I. Uh, failed, I think, to get a pitch change that I wanted. And I, you know, it's a very loud note and it was just boom. <laughs> I thought, oh my goodness. And it was, I was able to fix it quickly, but I think the note was in the chord. So okay. it really disrupt, but yeah, it happens. You know, we're only human, so. Um, I know that organists have special shoes. Um, do you have special shoes for when you? No, uh, no, I I do not even wear shoes. I just use my bare feet, well, socks on my feet uh -huh. because I I can be more in touch with the pedal because in an orchestra the pitch is not always constant. You know, when uh, string players get excited, brass players blow hard, the pitch might go up a little bit. So you always have to be what we call riding the pedal, making sure that. You're, you're able to adjust at any moment. So I feel more in contact with the pedal without shoes on. So I've just played that way. No one can really see it because I'm clear in the back. So. Well, and from far away, it probably looks like black shoes. Yeah, yeah, I wear black um, socks. I also noticed that you have a whole, you, you unroll a roll, it's like a chef's knife kit, except it's a whole roll of... Um, mallets mallets that you use to hit can you tell us a little bit more about those well sure the uh the instrument itself does not vibrate like other instruments like the flute or a string or whatever it's, it's something called the overtone series and that's what gives the instrument its color and the the timpani or timpani themselves only have a few of these overtones that really sound harmonic or, or blend well with the rest of the instruments. So we have to choose a mallet that will kind of match the color of the orchestra and the instruments we're playing with. We generally, we want that big, fat, round sound. So we use a larger, softer mallet. And uh, when you don't want articulation, you just want that sustained. So you use a larger mallet for that. When you really want the piercing, uh, rhythmic sound, we go to a smaller, harder mallet. 
Now, Maestro Polachek loves the tiki, 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 tiki in the rhythm. So he's always asking me to use harder, harder, harder mallets, which is a challenge, but it's also fun. And yeah, I really- be so precise. Uh, yeah, yeah, again, no margin for error. And- uh, um, Back to the tuning question. Do you tune to the A440 when the oboe gives the gives the A at the beginning of tuning? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, you, you wanna find out where that relative pitch level is. And generally, when you come to a rehearsal, people are, people are warming up and they all are playing their little excerpts. So you can kind of find out where the yeah. sense of the pitch is. Yeah, but when the oboe gives the A, yeah, I'm definitely there. Or, do you tune or, all four or do you make sure uh, that? Well, we have these things called tuning gauges on the drums that, that give you kind of a reference of where you should be. So I use my relative pitch and if I tune my, it's called the, the 29 inch drum uh, to, to an A. And then if I have a G, I know that's a major second below that on my other drum. If I need a, a D on my uh, 25 or something like that, I can hear that those intervals. So I use my relative pitch and adjust it by intervals. So. Um, as a former stagehand, I would like to complain to whoever created the <laughs> symphony because it has this perfect rim along the side that mm. seems like the exact right spot for picking it up. And it is in fact, the exact worst spot for picking it up. How, how do you move timpani? How do you tell, to, what tips do you give people about just getting your instrument from one place to another? Well, fortunately at the lead center, Ted and his crew are excellent. You know, I, I just taught them what to do. Yeah, they are amazing. And, and they are more protective than I am because they know they don't want to get in trouble. But there are certain areas of the drums where you can pick it up and they're, they're called the struts. And there are these big heavy metal things on the side. And if you just lift it from there, it's actually easier. Then and, you can, in a very, um, embarrassing manner waddle like a duck with this enormous yeah. <laughs> instrument back and forth right right yeah the reason you do not want to pick them up from the what we call the rim or the lip is because that pulls the tension off center in one of the areas and it's very difficult to even get a real pitch out of the instruments and so when, when one side's a little higher than the other it, it just doesn't vibrate evenly so Wow, that's all so interesting. Do you have a do you have a favorite kind of repertoire or a favorite like era that you love to play? Oh yes, classical and romantic. That's the that's our bread and butter. That's where we're we are really the drummer in the orchestra, and uh, we're not color anymore. We're uh, Beethoven, Brahms, even Mozart, Bach, even in the Baroque era that that adds that color. But when you get to that classical and romantic Tchaikovsky, I mean, we really drive melody lines sometimes. Oh, yeah. 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 We had one in the Mahler, too. You know, we had that bass line that grew. And same thing with uh, the planets. Sometimes we do have a, a small bass line that we have to play. So, um, Do you have a favorite memory of your years at Lincoln Symphony Orchestra or something that stands out to you? Oh, as I was reflecting, um, when I first started playing with the orchestra, I, I remember the centennial 1976, and we had Big Bird, Walter Cronkite and Aaron Copeland, and those were very 
memorable years because I was a young up and coming budding musician and here's Aaron Copeland. Wow. You know, got to work with him. Wow. Uh, so I do remember that and Big Bird, especially for some reason, I don't know why, but he was I there. Have, we have pictures of that at the symphony office. Yeah. Uh, also the large concerts and I'm really thankful and grateful that uh, my Maestro Polachek did Mahler too again this year because that's one of my favorite pieces. It's so spiritual and and it's such a fun piece to play. So there are a lot of good memories, mostly based on the music. The Enigma yeah. variations are great. All of the Beethoven symphonies. There's so many, really. I know, but what a how lucky we are to be in this art form. Do you remember your very first orchestra concert that you came to as a kid? Ah, uh, for Lincoln Symphony or just no, as a just in general? Well, it was, yeah, a high school orchestra where I grew up in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. And uh, it was, I was up in the balcony and I got to look down and mm -hmm. see all of these musicians and wow, such a great sound. You could really feel the sound even then coming up and engulfing you with vibrations. So. Wow. Um... I love that it was a visual experience as well as a musical one for you because the timpani I love I my the balcony is my favorite place to sit too to just watch the whole spread of the orchestra it gives you a whole different perspective. See the percussion scrambling around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, any any last things you want to say? We're just about out of time, but just curious from your perspective as a musician in the orchestra, if there's anything else you wanted to make sure people know. No, other than how grateful I am that we have a symphony in Lincoln, Nebraska, how grateful and thankful I am that people support it, yep. people and that work for it, like you and Ed and all of your staff. It's really been a great experience the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. So this, this I community, you. Well, thank you. And this, this community is just such an amazing community to pull together to support us through a move into the lead center expanded concerts it's really wonderful and just to have that that main floor of the lead center packed full at concerts is such a gift to the community Especially. but it's also a gift to the orchestra to be able to share that to share that music and have people appreciate it so especially the young people's concerts where all those young kids come and, and the, the carnegie it's orchestra magic it is those are so fun so yeah. much fun i'd love to harness the energy of 5,000 10 year olds. <laughs> Tell me about it. Oh, well, thank you so much, Rich. It was great talking with you today. You too. Take care, Barb. Goodbye. Bye. So welcome to Tracy Sands. Tracy is the assistant principal cellist for the symphony. Um, Tracy, just why don't we start out? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a cellist who has been playing with the symphony since 1972 <laughs> Amazing. and um, just uh, that was in high school. I think my mother sometimes had to take me to rehearsals. Um, at that point, I was the youngest uh, member that had joined the symphony along with uh, a famous bassoonist, now I'm not going to remember his name, Mark, at any rate, um, we, uh, I, I, I was in um, 
in college because Linda Rutherford keeps telling me that I'm not really been with the symphony that long because I then I went to Northwestern from 73 to 77. So I was gone from Lincoln and gone from Northwestern. And um, then I came back to the symphony. I want to tell you a little bit about those very first years when I was so young. Uh, Leo Kopp was the conductor. And one of my first concerts, it might have been my first concert, was, was with Van Cliburn. Oh, wow. At the city. Yes. And we were in the Stewart Theater. Was it at, okay, did you, were you there when he performed on the football field? Was that that same trip? No, I was there when he performed at, at the Stewart Theater with the symphony. Wow. And I think that's the first time he was here in Lincoln, but I, I can't remember. Wow, that's incredible. Did you attend Lincoln Symphony concerts as a child? Absolutely. I was one of those kids that came to the, you know, fifth graders coming to the symphony. But my mother also had symphony tickets. I went to the symphony throughout my life as a young person. What's the first piece that you remember hearing? Oh, gosh. I can't, I can't remember. And if Leo Kopp was conducting, it was probably Wagner. <laughs> um, what's the first piece that you remember performing with the symphony? Well, it was that um, Tchaikovsky piano concerto. And I remember as a young person, having not played all the orchestral uh, literature, that it had a gazillion... I'm going to say flats. <laughs> and I was like, oh my Lord. <laughs> but that, that whole experience, um, that's what I remember uh, most clearly in the very beginning years. That plus when Leo Kopp was conductor, a lot of Fogner, again, a lot of accidentals. Oh my. Um, what inspired you to choose the cello? How old were you when you decided you wanted to play the cello? I decided to play the cello uh, when I was, I must have been 10. And I was playing, I was a pianist um, since the age of five. And I was playing a piano recital. And a wonderful student of Carol Works was on the same recital. And I just immediately said, Mom, I want to play this instrument. And she said a couple things. One is that I had to get up and practice every morning on the cello. And I said, I promise. And then she said, you can't quit until you're 20. Oh my goodness. I, I said, I promise. Wow. And I, um, then I took, I took cello first in the summer with uh, Morris Collier, like a summer program. And he immediately got me to Carol Work, who then took me under her wing. And I was, I was her favorite student. Wow. Um, I took one semester of cello in college. I also, I'm a pianist. Um, and I believe that I was Karen Becker's worst cello student that she's ever had. <laughs> <laughs> one thing to start when you're 10 but I was an adult and it was I could not get over not playing in tune I could I just couldn't do it 
and I couldn't figure out how to play in tune. And it was just frustrating. I could spend 20 minutes out of my 30 minute lesson, just trying to tune the instrument. <laughs> Got you. Well, but my, my, my mother was a musician, she was a singer. My mother was a singer and a musician and um, had her master's in vocal music at that point. And I grew up singing and being a singer and playing the cello are, are connected completely. I think absolutely, because you feel it in the exact spot in your body where you breathe for singing. Right. And you hear it in your head, exactly the pitch you need to be playing. Whereas the piano, as my teacher used to say, those guys are button pushers. I know the old joke that pianists don't have to play, don't have to play in tune. Like you don't, you don't have a choice about how to tune and you can play anywhere in this like big range. Right. Um, really, I, I have a friend who, whose daughter played the cello and I said, how did you talk her into it? And she said, I took her to every orchestra concert and anytime there was something beautiful, I would say, did you hear that? I think it was the cello. <laughs> it always is. <laughs> What's your, do you have a favorite piece to play? A favorite orchestral piece? Um, that's really hard to say. Actually, very recently when we played Dvorak New World, was a huge uh, I every time I play certain pieces I say this might be the last time I get to have this experience and in in that concert it was it was fabulous our orchestra sounded fabulous fabulous um I I'm trying to think of others I do enjoy playing uh Beethoven Ninth Symphony the first time I played it was at Northwestern under Margaret Hillis, who was the conductor of the Chicago uh, Symphony Chorale. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It it was marvelous. You know, there's so many, um, so many. And Ed has taken me through a lot of fantastic performances. I'm I can't remember now exactly the one that I remember thinking. He knows this score inside and out and it was choral and you know obviously the Mahler was a huge a huge thing for me too I tell you there there is I cannot I haven't had the experience because I'm not an orchestral musician of sitting on the stage but is sitting in the audience when there are that many musicians on stage it gives you goosebumps to hear that music it is some of the most powerful Right. One of those powerful musical experiences are that that huge community. I always say that an orchestra is like a microcosm of community um, because everyone has to walk in the door and bring their best, but also understand that they're not always the most important thing happening. And to have that ability to work together as community is so special. Right. It is. Uh, speci specifically that Mahler I had my husband come and I, tr I tried to tell him that it was going to be such an event. And um, I said, huge numbers of people that are going to, to make this sound that you just won't believe. And I kept thinking to myself as I was playing it and the audience sees the choir and the soloists up there and they're going, why are they up there? Because for the longest time, oh, wow. the orchestra, just the orchestra is playing. And then in 
that last movement when that choir comes in, I, I mean, I just get I get the hair on on the, my back just stands straight up, and I go that this is a moment that other people don't get to experience. And on the on the in the orchestra, it is really special because you're wow. doing it. Wow. Um, do you have any any special memories or um, like insights about how the orchestra has changed over the years? Oh gosh. <laughs> yes, it's gotten much, much, much better. I I want to say that when I first joined the symphony, the Lincoln Symphony, that I felt probably because of how much the Lincoln Youth Symphony rehearsed and perfected their performances, I thought the Youth Symphony is sounding better than any orchestra that I'm playing in. But over the years, um, first I was under uh, Buddy Meal and things got better. And then um, Yan Yan and things got kind of crazy, but interestingly <laughs> better. And then after Ed Polachek, but for, I gotta tell you a silly thing um, because I had just gone through three different conductors and and I just figured, well, this is just a passing thing. I'm not even going to learn his last name. He's just Ed to me until he's here for a while. <laughs> one of the. Oh, and I have to tell you one more thing. So after the first concert with Ed Polachek, I came home and my husband hadn't been at the concert. And I come up to him and he goes, you smell like men's cologne. And I said. <laughs> The conductor kissed me and hugged me. And he goes, oh, he did? And I said, and every man, woman, child, and dog that would have come within his grasp. Oh, he is one of the most affectionate people. It's it's this like this bigness of spirit that that causes like that expansive music. And it's like right. he gets into that moment and can't, yeah, can't contain right. himself. But but I but I love I do enjoy that about him. I do enjoy it. And now he doesn't wear cologne, and so he has stopped in the last year. Yeah, I think <laughs> it still seeps out of his pores, though. <laughs> awesome. Um, for me, one of the really special things about this orchestra is, at the moment, that there's an interesting mix. There's a core of people who've been around for. 30, 40, 50 years. And then we still have that mix of student performers. And there's there's something really beautiful about someone who's like just thinking about technique and just working, working, working so hard at the beginning of the, their career. And then someone, you know, you say that there was a piece that Ed, you felt like he knew the score inside and out. But for you and like your peers, who have played these pieces dozens of times, you bring that maturity of sound and interpretation to the orchestra. And so I just think it's really special. I'm, it's so amazing that you've gone through that whole, that whole gamut yeah. with the orchestra. Yes, yes, I most definitely have, where I'm scared, spitless, never done it, to mm -hmm. been, been there, done this, but of course, with every new conductor and every new moment, 
um, as Ed would say, watch the conductor. <laughs> My favorite thing that he says in rehearsals is when he says to the orchestra, the surprise should be to the listener, not to the orchestra. <laughs> right. And we, we've been good about uh, not surprising um, ourselves too much. <laughs> oh, well, it's so great to have you as part of the orchestra. And thank you so much for visiting with me today. Thank you, Barb. We've loved having you as part of our orchestra family. And I learned your name right away. Oh, well, that was amazing. Seeing as I think <laughs> I was the fifth executive director within like three or four years. Right, but you've been the best. Oh, that's very kind of you. This this next season will be my 20th season with the orchestra. Oh, wow. I know, it's just- And we just keep looking younger. Younger and younger as the years go by. It is, I have to say, it's my, um, a friend of mine described it to me recently. She said, this is really the professional love of your life, isn't it? And it's absolutely true. It's just, it's my dream job and it's my dream group of people to work with. So it's wonderful. Great. Well, thank, thank you. Barbara. All right. Thank you so much. See you on the stage. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.